Hey, you, Prime members, you can listen to Three Little Words ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This podcast is brought to you by Quorn, the nation's favourite meat-free brand. Quorn is a great partner for this show because their products have been in our house for years because I'm a vegetarian, so it's always in my fridge. For each podcast, our sponsor Quorn has given us a fact which Tony uses to illuminate us in the world of Quorn. Yeah, let me illuminate you in the world of Quorn. That's an interesting use of language, John. Quorn spaghetti bolognese has 90% less saturated fat than a beef version, so it's a good choice if you're looking to eat more healthily. So if you're going vegan, vegetarian, or just cutting down on meat a bit, you'll find that Quorn is a great option because they've got so many different products from cocktail sausages to Turkish-style kebab. There's something for everyone. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Hello and welcome to this episode of Three Little Ways. Thanks for downloading it because this week we have got one of the most recognisable actresses in the UK. Shobna Galati has appeared in various things. Then a lady's best known for a role in Coronation Street, which, you know, when you think about it, is a mainstay of British culture. She's a, a great guest. I'm glad to have her on. I've never actually met you before, Shobna, and because we're doing this in different locations, I'm not even sure I've still met yeah. you. <laughs> well, um, I think our sons know each other because I think they went to school together. Yeah, we were, we were just talking about that just off air then because both of our sons have got an interest in performing arts, which is an interesting thing considering our, our two professions and people often think that that means that your kids are naturally going to be inclined to do it, but that's not always the case, is it? No, I tried to make him into a doctor, a lawyer or an engineer, but he uh, he wasn't going for it. <laughs> hello, Shobna. Hello, Tony. Hello, yeah. I thought I'd just let you two say hello to each other. So I'll reveal to the listeners that we know each other, don't we? Yeah, we do you do. want to tell? Do you want to tell the ladies and gentlemen how we know each other, Shubner, or shall I tell them? You can tell them, and I can join in if you like. We did. Well, this is beautiful. We did what I think the young people used to call a pop video together, <laughs> which was uh, I don't, John doesn't know this, and there's good reason for this. So we did a pop video together, which was uh, contemporary dance, and it was uh, improvised. I seem to remember. It was. We did a two-day shoot, and I very quickly, for reasons that have become apparent as time's gone, I've very quickly found myself in my underpants and recorded. Uh, uh, did you, a, can we just uh, stop for a second? Uh, gonna... you, said, you said pop video. Yes. For who? 
It was called Talk in Colour. Talk in uh, Colour, yeah. It's probably that was the band. Yes. And, and they, um, the song was called The Cell. The Cell. And it's available, uh, I'm sure if you go into YouTube now, uh, <laughs> you'll be... <laughs> You'll be able to see a beautiful piece of music, and it was something I was interested in in doing. So Shobna and I did the uh, video, and we, it was a weekend, and um, we were in a kind of warehouse building, and they pumped the music in, and we seemed to remember... We didn't talk much, did we, Shobs? I think we just kind of felt what we were doing physically. And yes, that, we felt what we were doing physically, and you ended up in your underpants. I did, and, and it- then my son, at the age of 14, was walking through Brighton... Uh, at his most self-conscious and his most self-aware, and there was a small crowd gathered outside Simon Webster's hairdressers where they were showing that video. There are images of um, me carrying Tony on my back. Yeah. Right, well... So that's how we I've met. I've got to be honest, <laughs> no, I wasn't expecting no, that no, at the start no. of the show. <laughs> 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 you were both in a pop video together. Shobner, I can believe you, but Tony, you, in a pop video. Well, well why, why would you say that? I was, uh, I, I can dance. I look good on camera. I'm in touch with uh, my feminine side. I mean, it was about relationships, wasn't it? It was just about people in a relationship and and the, um, the twos and fro's of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I got a little carried away with myself, which is very unusual for me. Well, Shovna, thanks for coming on and doing the show. The show for those people who haven't heard it, which I'm sure if you've downloaded it, you have done. The concept is that we ask people to bring three words that mean something to them, and then through that we get to understand them and their view of the world. So it falls to me to ask you for your first of the three little words. My first word is remember. Remember. Okay, so what happens now is, quickly I'll give a definition and the etymology of the words and a few quotes. So definition shouldn't be too difficult. Remember, to be able to bring back a piece of information to your mind or to keep a piece of information in your mind dates back to Middle English, I can see. The etymology of the word dates from the mid-14th century, rememberum, which means to keep something in mind, to retain in the memory. The French is remembre, which is to bring to mind. So we're around the middle of the 14th, 15th century. So I've got two quotes. First one's Martin Luther King. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And then... Mark Twain, uh, and I've got some experience of this one. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. So, Shobna, it falls to me to ask you, why did you choose the word remember? What quotes are they? They're amazing quotes. Um, I chose it because it's a verb. It's, you know, a doing word as we're taught at school. And it involves doing something in your head in order to remember and I chose it because it came up when I was caring for my mum, who was diagnosed with vascular dementia, and I was caring for her. So much so that I wrote a book about it, and I called my book Remember Me, like a directive to myself, to my mum, and, you know, for my mum, and for those reading my book. I wanted people to think about what remember means. And, you know, the quote that you gave me just then about, uh, the the one that Martin Luther King yes. wrote. You know, in the end, it's um, what was that? In the end, we, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Yeah, I think 
you know, as you watch somebody who you care about very much retreat into their world, it does become quite a silent one when you're looking after somebody who has got dementia. So it, that that's very resonant for me in this situation. How is your mum now? Do you still have her? No, no, I lost her. Uh, she, she died in um, November 2019, uh, so not so long ago. And I wrote this book in lockdown because I kind of felt forced to remember her during that time, because I was so isolated. Um, you know, the outside world had been cut off and much like dementia, you know, those things that happen in your present time. I think remember's got all sorts of meanings. It also means, you know, remember to eat, remember to drink, remember to post the letter, remember where your keys are. You know, all of that kind of memory dropped away from her. And, you know, that, that act of bringing to mind fell away. And what she did was she remembered her past so clearly and so vividly. I was kind of drawn into that journey. And I thought, well, that's really interesting because I want to share that with other people. Because for me, it was something, I don't know, it felt so important. It felt so urgent to share it. So I just sat and I wrote in first lockdown. I don't like a demon, <laughs> like a demon. Yeah. I've, I've never experienced that before, but I think because the world was so closed, yes, you know, it just shut down that it felt like an imperative. I, 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 I remember you writing it. That remembrance is a, as a testimony to a life lived, to your mum. It's to leave a stain on the silence, I think particularly as an artist, as a as a writer and an actress, which you are, you want to mark that person. You want to leave something to outlive them in your remembrance. Definitely. It was kind of like, it was considering my mum's journey into her memory and how she would want to be remembered and how anybody actually would want to be remembered you know that was the question that I asked myself from the beginning when I wrote this book but when you said your your mum's journey into her own memory how do you mean well she she remembered so much of her past she remembered so much of her childhood she remembered her journeys you know and her relationships with people and you know sometimes we joke about how people who have dementia say the same things over and over because they've forgotten what they've just said. Yeah. But each time that she told me a story, there was a little addition. And I don't know whether that was, you know, uh, as in the second quote, you know, a little bit of embellishment um, that, um, you know, that gave the story an edge. You know, in fact, my mum was an incredible storyteller, so that's probably why I ended up being an actor. Mm. But those little details, they fascinated me. And I think, you know, being on your own in a room with somebody who you are losing incrementally, you know, their memories are being cruelly robbed in front of you. It, to make myself feel better, I wrote what she said down. And I created this resource of memories and history and social history that I wanted to really bring to the table because. You know, ultimately, given my cultural background and, uh, you know, who I am and who my family are, 
within the context of being British, not many of those stories have been told or not many of those stories are available, you know, through a lived experience. So I wanted to really share that with people, you know, capturing her at her most fragile and revealing the process of looking after her as well, which was most fragile, and then revealing what I found out about myself in that process. I mean, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot in that book that I show of myself. And I think that, you know, when it was finally out there, it felt, (laughs) it felt like, you know, those reading would really get to know me and my family and the way I saw things. Did your mum have an, it might sound a little bit strange, but it'll, it'll become clear. Did your mum have a love of music? Yeah, my mum my mum and my, uh, well, actually it was my father who had the love of music. I lost my father when I was 18 years old. In fact, you know, uh, that was a big thing that I realised. I remembered as I was writing that uh, had the, had the impact on our story, yes. you know, as a family. I, I, I mean, even though I, I know that my father died, I didn't remember the absolute impact that he had had. So, you know, in it was, it was really writing a book without a structure, but writing a book about memories and remembering. So I found myself faced with that. But it was my father who loved music. The reason I ask is uh, there's an extraordinary phenomena that I've uh, I've been looking into recently because it's I think it's a, it's an extraordinarily revealing thing about us as animals. I think so. I have seen endless videos of elderly people in advanced states of dementia where they've lost all recognition of their loved ones, of themselves, of the place that they are, of the of their own children. Uh, uh, everything seems to have left them. But they are left with complete and pure memories of pieces of music from their childhood. I just wondered if there was any examples of that in your mum's story. And I was also interested, now we've got you, because you're absolutely right, culturally... We don't get to uh, hear those stories. We don't get to see those stories. So I'd be really interested in hearing, one, what your thoughts are on the the art of things. And then the other thing would be, what was your mum's journey? What is her story? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you her story through the two things that uh, she used to sing all the time. One was, All I Have to Do is Dream mm. by the Everly Brothers. Mm. She knew that backwards and upside down and her face would light up every time she heard it. And there was an advert that was happening on the television at the time, which had that in it. So she'd just burst into song around it and start to dance and light up and then remember for me her trip to watch the Beatles in Blackpool with my father when they were first in England and how They'd got a little, my my sister who was, I don't know, she must have just been a baby, but they took her with them, you know, because they had no childcare and they took, you know, they took my sister to see the Beatles in Blackpool. Um, And then I can also tell you another song she used to sing is a song from a, a film, a Bollywood movie, and the song's called Bombay Mirijan, which means kind of like Bombay is my life. 
And uh, I remember this specifically because I took her to Bombay uh, for a holiday. And as we flew into the airport, she started singing it because she grew up there. Now, the thing about my mum is the reason why I picked these two songs is um, because she was born in Southport in 1940. Her parents were in England. They'd come during the war. My grandfather worked in electrical engineering and he was working at at crew where the all you know the exchanges for all the yeah. for all the trains and so they moved to the north of england and my mum was born here my grandfather sporting a flat cap and a pipe and my grandma in a tweed suit wow. with a matching bindi um and i think because it was the war she often says that she links her story of the war to the lack of bananas in England. <laughs> she yeah. sort of says, you know, there, there was rationing. So they decided to, you know, go back to India because it was probably safer there. And they went back to Bombay or Mumbai, as it's called now. And uh, my mum was raised there. And it was there that she met her husband who then decided that he wanted to come back to the north of England. He wanted to go to the north of England to be part of, you know, making the NHS into what it is today. Because, you know, post-war, the you know, society was really fractured. The NHS was just starting and they needed people. So he was invited as a young doctor to train, actually, in England. Yeah. So, yeah, he came to England and then my mum came back to England, then spent her rest of the li her life in England until the day she died. And uh, her ashes are now distributed in the sea at Southport, where she wanted them to be. Wow. Not in the Ganges. No. No, but in Southport, where she was born. What you've just said there, Shabnan, in some respects, um, there's always an assumption uh, if you're, you're white British born that anybody of colour has a relationship with another place, particularly if they're the first generation to come over. And then you you made that reference then, that great comparison between scattering your ashes in Southport as opposed to the Ganges. But what appears to me is that your mum's heart is where her family was. Absolutely. I mean, it, when you remember, when through her, through her remembering, I found, I found a woman, not simply my mother, I just found a woman yeah. who had like this... You know, I, I say in my book, and I, I'm just going to say what I say because I, I think I just I just say I found a woman who made clear choices, grown from a deep, quiet love for her husband and family, and who could live her life fully with fairness and sincerity, even when her world fractured. I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting about how we remember and what we remember is that we as individuals curate our own memories, don't yeah, we? Yeah. We just we decide what's in the filing cabinet of our lives. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And we pull out the file that we want to show people. And I in making the notes, I was linking people and places. So the her memories were not just about the past. It was about what they brought to the table. Yes, yeah, you know, it's not just a it was the connections. And I suppose in the terms of dementia. Forgetting is about those links and connections. They get slack in the progress of the disease. So I just wanted to sort of 
define them again and and bring them to life. Has it changed your view of your own memories? Definitely. I mean, I I had to be really clear when I was writing the book that it is my memory and it is my perception because I belong to a family. I have um, three other siblings. So I, I had to make sure that it wasn't their memories. You know, I'm not putting words into anybody else's mouth but my own. And it, you know, it's my perception of what happened. Has it changed the way I look at the past? Yeah. But but more so, has it changed the way you look at the now? Do you, does something happen and you think, God, I hope I hold that memory because this is really special. I'll try and file it away somewhere special rather than in the past you just go, oh, yeah, that was a nice day. I think that when we look at the other words that I've chosen, I think that will become manifest to you both. I don't want to give that away. Okay. <laughs> well, well we, you're about to because we're just about to. That was your, your first word, Shobna. And it's a fantastic yeah. word and a beautiful, touching story. And, uh, thanks for sharing it. What's your second word, Shobna? My second word is extraordinary. So extraordinary, so super quick definition. It's very unusual, special, unexpected or strange, beyond ordinary. Etymology is from Latin, extraordinarius, out of the common order. And I've got a couple of quotes. I've got a lot of quotes, but they're all so wonderful. I'll try and cut them down to... Even if one is neither vain nor self-obsessed, it is extraordinary to be oneself. That's Simone de Bouvier. Affliction is often the thing which prepares an ordinary person for some sort of an extraordinary destiny. That's certainly true. And then I'll finish off with Virginia Woolf. The most extraordinary thing about writing is that when you struck the right vein, tiredness goes. It suggests that it must be an effort to think wrong. So why did you pick the word extraordinary? Again, it, it links to it links to discovering my mother as she lost her memory because she'd look at me and she'd say, well, what are you doing? And I'd say, Mom, I'm just writing down what you're saying, you know. She goes, why me? Why? You know, I've lived, you know, I'm just a woman. I'm ordinary. And I said, mum, yours is an extraordinary life. Because in your first quote, you know, we're all very humble. We don't celebrate what we, what we do. We never do. And I think looking back at my mum's legacy, her journey, the history of empire it brought up all of that social history for me as well. It brought up the legacy of partition and how quiet my parents' generation were about that trauma and how they just dealt with it in their lives. It wasn't anything that we ever spoke about, you know. It was nothing to be spoken about and it was always like shoved shoved away and shoved to one side and please let's not talk about it and you know how given the trauma that they led these lives where they bringing up their children in this country doing what they're doing contributing to the infrastructure contributing to you know social community life and yet people were seeing them as something different as you know we've got those signs up saying no blacks no dogs no you know, it was the same for my parents, you know, when they were trying to rent. It's kind of like you just think they overcame these things and they developed mechanisms to live amongst people despite the prejudices. 
and they they carried on. And they, they didn't think it was extraordinary at all, but I think it is. And uh, uh, I just wanted to sort of give testament to that. Yes. I would talk about women as well, because we often only celebrate women in their extraordinariness when they've invented vaccines or something, which is amazing. But, but it's also amazing to bring up your family. We don't look at the things that people do in their everyday lives. So I thought that extraordinary was something to celebrate, unusual, remarkable, outside the normal course of events. Because they, my parents did step outside the normal course of events. There's a lot of what you said on the back of the words, though, Shobna, that um, deserve, I think, a little bit more examination. You're talking about the, the extraordinary life that your parents had and their generation in in coming over and helping to build the infrastructure of this country at times when they were suffering levels of prejudice that we would now deem completely unacceptable and yet still wanted to make a contribution. But also they were doing that on the back of a trauma, which I've only recently been reading about in terms of the partition of the Indian Empire, which for those people who don't fully know, basically meant somebody else decided where you should live on religious grounds. And if regardless of of choice you may want, you were just moved and forced to, to live a life that you could never have planned for. Can you just tell us what, what actually happened within your family's experience of that? Although, as you said, they, they never actually spoke about it as if it was an extraordinary event. Well, I had the opportunity because I did a programme for um, Channel 4 called Children of the Empire. So I had the opportunity to go to India and to speak to one of one of um, my relations um, about what happened on the day that it was decided that they should leave their home. Um, my family are Punjabi, and they are originally from uh, what is now Pakistan. So they are Hindus, and because they came from an area there, the arbitrary line that was drawn divided the Punjab. It divided, obviously, the east of India too, but from my experience that I'm going to speak about is the division of Punjab, where there's Christians, there's Sikhs, there's Hindus, and there's Muslims. And all of us are in this place called the Punjab, which was just split and divided. So they were on the wrong side of the border, according to that line. So from my auntie, who's since died, her 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 journey was pretty traumatic. Her, she saw her parents die. She saw her siblings die. So sorry when you say die, what, what do you mean? They were killed. Um, they were killed on a train that they were on when they were going to the other side of the line. Um, and she was only a very small child when that happened. And um, there's lots of sort of, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Stories around that, but uh, she hid. She hid under dead bodies in order to survive. And uh, she was she was she was found luckily and was able to carry on living her life but the other children the other children came together eventually they were all that the, the surviving children were found and one of the surviving members of the family came to live with my mum she was the only girl in her family um, her she had brothers you know she was the eldest and then she had brothers and then her cousin came to live with her in India when she was very small and she just thought well why is my cousin come and her cousin had come because, because of what had happened to her family. She'd lost her parents. She'd lost some of her siblings. I mean, how do you not talk about that? We talk about so many, so many things, but how do you not talk about that? You find that is the experience of many of those who lost family members, you know, on both sides, on all sides. I'm not one to... Um, point any fingers except the fact that that place should never have been divided in the first place that's where that's where if I was to point blame it would be there yeah and it's one of those things though that it 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 kind of happened and the world turned the blind and it just moved on and nations were, were created the line was drawn saying that's Bangladesh that's Pakistan that's India done and it's crazy when you think about it now that it's not been more re-examined in history. I know. It's the, I think it was the biggest moving of people that's ever, ever happened. You know, I had the opportunity to go, go to Pakistan and have a look to see where my grandparents came from. It was so wonderful. I, it, was, it was the first time that I've ever actually felt like I belonged to a place. I had never felt that feeling before because I had never really seen people who really looked like me. You know, if I was to, to define what I looked like or, or could recognise in myself and my defining features, where I went to Lahore and I saw men and women who had my defining features and I just thought, flipping heck, I've never seen this before, Yes, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I felt part and I felt whole and... When I looked at that city, for example, we were, uh, I ate in this most beautiful place. You know, food is a very big part of my life as well. Um, and I ate in this beautiful place and it overlooked a Gurdwara 
and a mosque. And I just thought of how it was before we were divided mm. and how it, how it possibly could have been. But I think that's the nature of people in control, isn't it? They want to divide people in order to control people because if we were united, there would be a different story. Uh, that's uh, historically how the world works. We divide and rule. It's interesting when you say that and you link it back to your first words, remember, it's almost as if there's a part of your DNA when you went to Lahore that remembered to give you that sense of belonging. It was, uh, and I'll not not forget that. I just felt so deeply, deeply connected. Perhaps how my mum feels about Southport. Yeah, yes. So that leads us, I think, Shabna, looking at, which is often the case John and I have found in, it's not just the words that uh, people pick that inform us, it's uh, actually the order of the words tend to have a narrative that reveals itself. So could you tell us your final word, because I think that really does tie in with the other words that you've brought to us today. My final word is overwhelm. Overwhelm. So the definition something... It can be to defeat someone by using a lot of force to overthrow something. The etymology is it's from a Middle English word. For, uh, whelm is actually means to cover over. But the quotes really do, really do tie into the story so far. The first one's Nietzsche, perhaps not your favourite, but um, the individual has always had to struggle to keep from being overwhelmed by the tribe. That's Nietzsche. Two... Frida Kahlo, I tried to drown my sorrows, but the bastards learned how to swim, and now I'm overwhelmed by this decent and good feeling. And then finally, my absolute all-time hero in life, Camus, said, Life can be magnificent and overwhelming, and that is the whole tragedy. Without beauty, love or danger, it would almost be too easy to live. Wow. Yeah. Mm. That's why I love him. Uh, so could you tell me, well, I get, stop my lip from trembling, why you chose the word overwhelm? I chose the word overwhelm because of Frida, Nietzsche and Camus. <laughs> <laughs> and because of, you know, there was points in my book where I used overwhelm as a noun. And I remember sending it to my editor who said, are you sure you don't mean overwhelmed? And I went, no. I mean overwhelm because I see the word really clearly in my head. I see it visually. I see like, I know that this perhaps is not exactly the meaning of it, but my visual, my visual feeling when I think of the word is when a ship or a boat turns over and you're underneath it Yes. and you're in water. And I often feel engulfed in that way uh, by my feelings. Yes, same. And sometimes I can't get out. But what I do know is that in the place between the ship turning over or the boat turning over and the water, my head is still above the water. So that's where I land in my head. You know, day to day, it is a question of whether I go under that water or I stay above it. And that's how I lead my life. And no, it sounds a bit drastic. It doesn't. It doesn't. It makes perfect sense to me. 
perfect but sense. I have to find ways to mitigate that sense of being in that deluge or being swamped in my thoughts or swamped in the in what's happening in the world is this like a battle with depression or a, a battle with a mood that can affect your ability to operate or is it just a sense of so much input is happening you've got to be selective i think it's it can be being overwhelmed by joy as much as it can be overwhelmed yeah. by sadness i think it's just a feeling of being sort of so overly empathetic that i can't get out i get uh, you know, the downpour or the deluge is everything, you know, everything that the world brings. And I, as uh, you know, in the Camus quote, it is, it is everything. So it's not necessarily depression yeah, or m- mental health difficulties, though I do have them, but it's not, it's not necessarily that it's just, sometimes I can't see my way through. There's too much information. It's like the computer's going off and I can't, I can't see my way through it. I tried to capture it. I wrote a I did a film called Funny Cow that I wrote, and the final line of that was, life has always been too much for me, too much and not enough all at the same time. It's that feeling, just the realisation that you're alive and there are other people in this world can pull me up short just in my day-to-day life. I can be suddenly have a sense of being overwhelmed by that. Yeah, absolutely. And in the same sense of whelm, sometimes I feel quite underwhelmed. Yes, yes, yeah, well. but, yeah, most of you the know. time, yeah, of course, yeah. I think I've learned, though, I mean, I'm, what? how old am I now? I'm 54 now. So in some ways I've learnt a little bit of control of that and I find that I'm, I have to learn that I can't, you know, be overpowered or overwhelmed by things that aren't in my control. It's it's just a question of, though, when it's happening is picking those things out that are not in my control and then allowing them to just be without being, you know, under that boat with me. Yes. No, no, it's, you may absolutely, and I'm sure that what you're saying will resonate with thousands of people listening. I understand it's exactly what you mean. And it's interesting, again, to me, to look at the the order of your words to go from remember to extraordinary to overwhelm. And I, I can see the through line of your life's experience there. I think to an extent as well, you know, to to shoulder the responsibility of writing my mum's story through my my memory of it was, uh, was quite hard and I was overwhelmed by that. And then to, to just be to just decide to be an actor or a creative person as opposed to following a path that it was expected of me has been, you know, veering off the path. You're not veering off a path into some kind of safe place. Sometimes you veer off a path into a very unsafe place and you can get swamped by that. So there's there's all sorts of things that happen in your sort of narrative structure of your life that, that the overwhelm thing has become a real. But it's interesting that as a person who who sees life that way, where you're almost hypersensitive to everything around you, you pick a career where you require that hypersensitivity in order to engage with what you do. 
Yeah, it's unfortunate though, isn't it? Sometimes <laughs> it's just it's just in a really unfortunate situation. I mean, having my life clean toilets. One of my very first job was cleaning a toilet toilets in a factory in Oldham, where I started shop floor and then worked my way all the way up to the offices. After I'd graduated, actually, in Arabic and Middle Eastern politics, but I don't think anybody had really considered that that was career for me. No, I tell you what, you'd be busy now. <laughs> I would be busy now, but um, at the time when I signed up with the agency in Oldham, all they could find for me, interestingly, was cleaning toilets. I mean, there's no harm in cleaning toilets, but I just felt like, you know, we were talking about life choices. Yeah, I was overwhelmed by that too, (laughs) I have to say, because it was was quite a job, a big factory and every single toilet. (laughs) Well, Shobna, you've come up with three ways that have taken us on a journey that I, in all honesty, could not have expected. Uh, Remember extraordinary and overwhelm. What would be the word that you would like to never hear again? Well, it's a new word. It's the word shame. Or actually specifically Sharon, which is the Urdu word, which, uh, uh, you know, the English translation is shame. And when I kind of thought about it, in in English, Sharon means kind of like abashment. So it's kind of like, what would I say about that? It means that you are, it's about modesty, it's about bashfulness, it's about embarrassment. Humility. And humility, the shame you feel when your inadequacy or guilt is made public. And I think in my life, my life choices have been noted by members of my community, sometimes members of my family, as shameful or full of shame or full of sharam somehow along the way that I've made some choices that have dishonoured people. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. So I'd like to dump it really because that's a judgment call. It's not necessarily what actually happened. It's somebody else's judgment. It's somebody else's view of things. An imposition. An imposition. That word yes, is an, an imposition. imposition. Absolutely yeah. right. Yes. So in that way, I'd like to dump it because uh, it's not served me in any way, shape or form. No. But maybe it has in a way, though, because I've managed to write a book. Well, it, gives you something to, it gives you something to push against, and that's often that's the, right. the, they're yeah. often the things that shape us most. But I, I couldn't agree with him more. The idea of somebody else sitting in judgment of your choices without seeing the, your life behind your eyes, into the bin, I say. Into the bin. I've got this piece of art at home, which is uh, by a sort of pop artist. Her name's Maria Kamar. Um, she's Canadian. Um, she calls herself hate copy online. And it's a piece of pop art with this um, very attractive 
woman of Indian heritage, I'd say, saying, um, has anyone seen my Sharam? <laughs> you know, wow. just like so I have that, I have that as a constant reminder. I have two of hers actually, two, two prints of hers, and one says no, Nehi in Hindi, and one says, Has anyone seen my Sharon? Both with women on them, both with those speech bubbles, which I think are just for me very powerful words, no and sharon. I think we just need to celebrate the word no and dump the word sharon. Perfect. <laughs> Great stuff. Shabna, what a great way of finishing the show. I think that's that's a positive message to send out there. Thank you for for being on the show, for bringing your words and taking us on your journey and, and introducing your mother to us. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Uh, thank you for your insight, Shabna. I, I always lo- I love talking to you. You're a very, very insightful human being. Yeah, but not terribly articulate at times because oh, I no, get you. overwhelmed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you do all right. Thank you. Well, I think that was an insightful conversation. Yeah. There's so many avenues there I would have liked to have gone down further, uh, but time didn't permit. But what a lovely, thoughtful friend to have in she, your life. Oh, she's great. I think Shelby's absolutely great. She's uh, And she's, like all people that I love, she's not one thing, she's many things. She's got funny bones as well. I've spent time with her in pubs properly laughing, you know, that real laughter when you can't breathe she's got that in her she's very bright she's very perceptive and she's very determined yeah she's uh, that sounds a little bit childish but she's lovely Mm. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as John and I obviously did don't forget to subscribe follow share and like and uh, just remains to say a massive thank you to our meat free sponsor Quorn super protein super tasty Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.